Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. Everybody poops, and sometimes kids poop way too much, which is why we're going to spend this episode talking about diarrhea. The World Health Organization lists diarrheal illness as the second leading cause of death worldwide for kids under 5 years old, with an estimated 760,000 deaths every year. Here in the U.S., we're fortunate enough to have the infrastructure to keep diarrhea from being life-threatening in most cases, but it still accounts for nearly 200 million outpatient visits and around half a million hospitalizations every year. Diarrhea is a huge topic that would be almost impossible for me to completely cover, so to keep everything from spiraling out of control, we're going to spend a pretend day in clinic like we did for our episode on sore throats to hit some of the major teaching points about diarrhea. Since the history and exam are going to be important for every case, I want to take a minute to cover some highlights before we get started. First, not every sloppy stool is diarrhea. The World Health Organization defines diarrhea as three or more loose liquid stools in a 24-hour period, which means that a true medical diagnosis of diarrhea takes more than one rough trip to the bathroom. The definition is a little more flexible for infants, especially young, exclusively breastfed babies. If the only thing you're putting in is liquid, most of the time that's exactly what's going to come out, and babies can poop pretty frequently before they cross the line into diarrhea. That's why you have to dig a little more to find out if the stool is truly watery, how much is coming out, and, most importantly, look for signs of dehydration. While you're talking poop with your patient, it's also a good idea to check the growth chart and cover travel, diet, and potential exposure history as you start digging for possible causes. Once you decide that your patient does in fact have diarrhea, the time frame matters. Diarrhea is considered acute anywhere up to 13 days, although it gets labeled as prolonged if it lasts a week or more. If the symptoms continue for two weeks, it crosses the line into persistent diarrhea, while chronic diarrhea is anything that lasts 30 days or longer. Those definitions matter because the duration of symptoms can help you decide which potential causes are most likely. Viral and bacterial infections tend to be more acute, while chronic diarrhea can go along with metabolic, malabsorptive, and inflammatory processes. We'll get into that more as we talk through the cases, and conveniently enough, our first patient is here now. Case number one is a five-year-old who's been having four or five big watery stools every day for the last three days, plus a few episodes of vomiting. He hasn't had much of an appetite, but he's still doing a decent job taking in fluids. The family hasn't taken any recent trips, but his dad tells you that there have been a lot of kids out sick at school over the last week or two. On your exam, he's afebrile with normal vital signs and looks pretty well hydrated. He doesn't like the abdominal exam, but he doesn't cry or fight you, and his belly is a little more gurgly than the typical kid on auscultation. With three days of watery stools, this patient can be described as early acute watery diarrhea, which is usually caused by a virus or toxin. If he'd been at a big family picnic or a little shorter duration of symptoms, you might lean more toward toxin-mediated, but in this case, three days of symptoms and lots of sick contacts at school sounds more like a virus. There are a ton of viruses that can cause diarrhea and other GI symptoms in kids, especially because some kids seem to get an upset stomach whenever they're sick with anything. The two most commonly identified are norovirus and rotavirus. Norovirus is particularly obnoxious because the body doesn't generate long-term immunity after an infection. But luckily for us, we have a wonderfully effective vaccine for rotavirus. The United States started routinely vaccinating for rotavirus in 2006 with really good results. 
A study by a group led by Jennifer Cortez in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011 looked at rotavirus vaccine coverage and diarrhea-related healthcare contacts from the five years before the vaccine was introduced compared to the first two years after in kids under five years old. They found that hospitalization rates in general dropped more than 25% and that admissions specifically coded for rotavirus dropped by 60-75% to 75% after the vaccine was rolled out. That added up to an estimated 65,000 fewer hospitalizations over two years, just from a simple oral vaccine. Parents may ask you about the risk of intussusception, and that was a major problem with the vaccine early on but the formulation that had the highest risk was pulled off the market in 1999. The risk is technically still there, but according to the CDC, it's less than 1 in 20,000 vaccine doses. In the end, for most cases of acute watery diarrhea, figuring out the exact cause doesn't really matter. Finding out about a rotavirus or norovirus outbreak can be helpful to try to keep it from spreading to more vulnerable people, but there's really no indication for diagnostic testing if the patient is otherwise healthy. Why? Because knowing what virus is the problem doesn't change the treatment plan of supportive care and maintaining hydration. Most kids are able to make it through at home, but some do need to head to the hospital for an IV, especially if they're too young to understand they need to keep drinking even when their tummies hurt. One more thing to mention before our next patient comes in. Probiotics. The basic idea behind probiotics is to stock your gut with the right kind of bacteria to help keep everything moving regularly. There have been quite a few studies on their efficacy in almost every kind of diarrhea, but we'll focus here on acute infectious diarrhea. Rather than wading through all the individual studies, I'll sum it up with a Cochrane review that was published in 2010. 63 studies met the inclusion criteria for the review, covering a total of 8,014 patients, and 56 of the studies included infants and young children in the patient population. There was a lot of variability in the dosing regimens, but taken on aggregate, probiotics decreased the duration of diarrhea by an average of 24 hours, with a decrease in stool frequency as soon as the second day of treatment. Keeping your patient hydrated is still the primary goal in treatment, but adding probiotics might help them recover a little more quickly. Moving on, our second patient is here. She's a three-year-old girl who's been having loose stools for around a month. First thing in the morning, she'll pass more form stool, but as the day goes on, they start to get watery and she has as many as 8 or 9 bowel movements in a day. There's never been any blood in her stool, although her butt sometimes gets a little rashy, and she hasn't had any fevers or vomiting. Aside from all the poop, she's been doing really well. She's been gaining weight appropriately and she's been as active as ever. She never wakes up at night with diarrhea and her appetite hasn't changed at all. On your exam, she's smiling and playful without any abnormal findings and no pain at all on her abdominal exam. Chronic diarrhea like this patient has always raises some concerns. Inflammatory bowel disease, parasitic infections, and congenital conditions like malabsorption can all present with chronic loose stools, so it's important to look for the red flags. The most reassuring part of this patient's presentation is her weight gain. Most of the severe treatment-requiring causes of chronic diarrhea will cause a child to start dipping on the growth chart, but our girl is still moving right along. That's not to say that she won't fall off if this keeps on happening, but it does move some of the bad stuff further down the list. A lack of fevers and blood in the stool also make infectious and inflammatory causes less likely, and the same goes for nighttime stooling, which is a common exam question clue for inflammatory bowel disease. Malabsorption is a cause of chronic diarrhea that can be a little tougher to pick up. 
For most of us, fat and carbohydrates are absorbed in the small intestine, but for patients with malabsorption, one or both keep moving right on through to the colon and cause bloating, cramping, and some major changes in the stool. Carbohydrate malabsorption is tricky because it can look like a lot of other GI problems. There's bloating and flatulence caused by the bacteria in the colon breaking down the sugars, and watery diarrhea because the unabsorbed sugars are osmotically active. The most common kind is lactose intolerance, although there are plenty of other possibilities out there, and it can take a lot of monitoring over time to see which foods trigger a reaction before you narrow down the diagnosis. Fat malabsorption is a little easier to recognize because it causes steatorrhea, which is the proper way to describe big, greasy poops. Cystic fibrosis, pancreatic insufficiency, and metabolic disorders are some of the highest priority to rule in or out when you're worried about fat malabsorption because they're all serious and treatable conditions. Fat is a major source of nutrition and calories, so an inability to absorb it can lead to weight loss and failure to thrive pretty quickly. We generally want kids to grow and gain weight, but for patients on the other end of the age and weight spectrum, there's actually a drug out there that acts as a lipase inhibitor to induce fat malabsorption in obese patients. It's called Orlistat or Ally, and it's available over-the-counter in the U.S. and the European Union. Studies suggest that, along with better diet and exercise habits, it does have some benefit for weight loss, although you do have to be willing to put up with the big, sloppy poops. Our patient probably isn't malabsorbing. Again, the most important thing is that she's still gaining weight appropriately, but she also doesn't have other typical features. There's no association with certain foods, and she manages to pass some well-formed stools in the mornings. Her case sounds like chronic, nonspecific diarrhea, which is called toddler's diarrhea in patients under 4 years old and sits somewhere on a spectrum with irritable bowel syndrome in older patients. As you'd guess from the name, it's a pretty nonspecific condition and often doesn't really have an identifiable cause. Riley Children's Hospital in Indiana has a nice summary handout about it, but management comes down to dietary modifications and waiting. If a kid drinks a lot of fluid, it can go beyond what she's able to absorb from her digestive tract, leaving the extra water to come out in the stool. That increases even more if a child drinks a lot of fruit juice, which can contain sorbitol and fructose, sugars that are poorly absorbed in any toddler's intestine. A diet that's high in fiber and low in fat, so lots of fruits and vegetables without very much meat, also known as the toddler platter, can also contribute to looser stools. If tweaking the diet doesn't fix the problem, you're probably fine waiting for the digestive tract to keep maturing as long as your patient keeps growing and developing normally. Our last patient of the day looks the worst because that's how it always goes. He's a six-year-old boy who's been having diarrhea for three days. His parents were hoping he'd start getting better on his own, but this morning he started passing blood in his stool, so they brought him in. He has a fever of 101.2, that's 38.4 Celsius, and his pulse is 115 with a normal blood pressure and respiratory rate. He's pale and tired looking, but talks to you appropriately enough. He doesn't have any rash, and his belly is only tender if you press really deeply. So, this kid is sick. The blood in the stool alone tells you it's more severe, and that's before you get to the fatigue, pallor, and tachycardia that point toward pretty significant dehydration. Bloody diarrhea is actually the textbook definition of dysentery, so if he were out on the Oregon Trail, he'd be in big trouble. As it is, if you saw him in your clinic, there's a good chance you'd send him to the ER for some fluids and to see if he needs to be admitted for more treatment. 
Blood in the Stool throws up a big flashing sign that you need to dig deeper to find out what's causing the diarrhea, because it's often a sign of something more severe that might require treatment. The first thing to rule out is acute problems that could require surgery, like intussusception, obstruction, and volvulus. Our patient is a little old for intussusception and volvulus, and his diarrhea progressing without much abdominal pain makes it even less likely. The lack of pain, plus the fact that there's still plenty of gas and stool passing through, also puts a bowel obstruction a lot lower on the list. We can probably hold off on calling a surgery consult for him based on his history and exam, although if you're ever uncertain, it's better to call the surgeons or get an x-ray or CT of the belly than to miss a surgical abdomen. Our patient's bloody diarrhea and fevers point us more toward infectious or inflammatory causes. Looking back at his growth chart, he's been gaining weight well all his life so it's less likely to be Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. That brings us back around to infection, and with fevers and blood in the stool, a bacterial enteritis is at the top of the list. Kids, and people in general, usually pick up bacterial diarrhea from fecal-oral transmission, contaminated or undercooked meat, or exposure to certain animals. Getting an exposure history can be helpful to get an idea of what the problem might be, and stool culture or nucleic acid testing for enteric pathogens can also help if your patient is sick enough that you need to identify a bug. For the next few minutes, we'll run through some of the more common bacteria, both in terms of what you might see in practice and what's likely to be on a test. Salmonella, and we'll keep things more domestic and focus on non-typhoid strains, is one of the leading causes of bacterial enteritis. When the CDC looked at foodborne illness outbreaks between 1998 and 2008, Salmonella was responsible for more than one in four of the outbreaks with an identified cause. The bacteria like to live in, on, and around animals, which means that both food and live animals are potential sources. Poultry is the classic source, and bacteria can be transmitted through handling live animals or undercooked meat or eggs. Reptiles and amphibians are another major vector for infection, to the point where the Centers for Disease Control recommends that kids under 5 and anyone who's immunocompromised avoid any contact whatsoever with reptiles. Salmonella is also why it's illegal in the U.S. to sell turtles whose shells are less than 4 inches across. It's just too easy for kids to put them in their mouths and get sick. Even though Salmonella is a treatable infection, it doesn't always have to be treated. In an otherwise healthy host, it's typically self-limited and resolves in less than a week. Patients who are under 3 months old are at a higher risk for bacteremia, meningitis, and osteomyelitis, so they get treated whenever salmonella is detected. Treatment is also recommended for patients with immunocompromise, sickle cell disease, or anyone who looks septic. The specific antibiotic choice varies based on culture information and local resistance patterns, but it's usually a 5-7 to seven day treatment course. Shigella is next on our list, and it's the most common cause of bloody diarrhea in kids. Ingesting fewer than 100 organisms is enough to cause an infection, which is an incredibly low infectious dose and why it's so common for the bacteria to spread in places like daycare centers and nursing homes. Once the infection sets in, patients will have fevers, diarrhea, cramping abdominal pain, and tenismus, which is the constant feeling of having to poop. As awful as it is to go through, Shigella is another infection that's typically self-limited, with most patients recovering within 72 hours after the onset of symptoms. Antibiotics are indicated if the patient is hospitalized or severely ill, but because there's a high resistance rate, it's best to use information about what works best in your area when you prescribe the initial treatment. 
Number three on our list of bacteria that cause you to go number two is Campylobacter. Campylobacter dejuni is the most well-known, mainly because there's a strong association with undercooked chicken and exams love to ask about it. But Campylobacter coli infections are also pretty common. In either case, infections peak in kids under two years old and in young adults. The symptoms probably sound pretty familiar at this point. Diarrhea that may become bloody, fevers, nausea, and abdominal pain. And again, most patients recover within a week without needing treatment. For the sickest patients, or to help reduce the spread of the infection, you can prescribe a 5-day course of erythromycin. Next up is everyone's favorite bacteria, E. coli. E. coli lives in the GI tract of practically every warm-blooded animal. In most cases, it's harmless and can actually be beneficial by producing vitamin K and keeping more pathogenic bacteria from finding a place to live. The problem with E. coli is all the strains that can cause disease. They come in a few different flavors with their own little twist on how the infection develops and presents. Enterotoxigenic E. coli produces two toxins, LT enterotoxin, which is similar to what cholera produces, and ST enterotoxin, which causes the secretion of fluid into the bowel and both toxins cause diarrhea. If you've had a case of traveler's diarrhea, enterotoxigenic E. coli was probably the cause. The other three most important pathogenic strains of E. coli, enteropathogenic, enteroinvasive, and enterohemorrhagic, all try to act like Shigella. Enteropathogenic E. coli has similar virulence factors to Shigella, enteroinvasive E. coli infection looks identical to Shigella, and enterohemorrhagic E. coli produces a toxin that's either exactly like are almost the same as Shigella, depending on the strain. Enterohemorrhagic E. coli also deserves a mention for the famous O157H7 strain, which causes severe bloody diarrhea and can progress to hemolytic uremic syndrome. Patients with HUS have bloody diarrhea, abdominal pain, and signs of dehydration, but also progress to having unexplained bruising or bleeding, generalized swelling, and high blood pressures. The classic triad is microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and acute kidney injury, and treatment can get messy with transfusions, dialysis, and plasma exchange all on the table. Once again, in most cases, you're better off not using antibiotics if a patient has E. coli-induced diarrhea. There's actually some data that suggests that antibiotics can increase the incidence of hemolytic uremic syndrome. Instead, stick with supportive care and maintaining hydration, and most patients will be fine within a week or so. The last bacterial cause of diarrhea to mention is Clostridium difficile, better known as C. diff. C. diff is classically associated with antibiotic use, but around 25% of cases are acquired through person-to-person -person transmission. There's a reason you put on those gowns when you come into contact with C. diff patients in the hospital. With all the potential complications, along with the nuances in testing and treatment for pediatric patients, C. diff probably deserves its own episode, but it felt wrong to talk about diarrhea without at least mentioning it. For now, remember that patients with C. diff usually have acute onset of profuse, watery diarrhea and often have fever and abdominal cramping to go with it. For treatment, the 2018 edition of the Red Book recommends oral metronidazole for mild to moderate infections, or oral vancomycin for severe infections or patients who fail to respond within a week. Getting back to our patient, he ended up spending a night in the hospital for IV fluids, but turned around pretty quickly. He had a wonderful team of evidence-conscious doctors who didn't test him for pathogens, so we don't know what the cause was, but we're happy it got better without anything more than supportive care. 
And that's it for our episode on diarrhea. For take-home points, if you remember nothing else, remember that the first line of treatment for nearly every patient with diarrhea is supportive care and maintaining hydration. It turns out that violently flushing out the site several times a day is a great way to clear an infection, and most diarrheal illnesses are self-limited. You can get a sense of what the causative organism might be from history, but diagnostic testing should be saved for the sickest patients. Not all diarrhea is infectious, and you should watch out for red flags, primarily weight loss and prolonged symptoms, to point you toward other potential causes like celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease. Once you've done enough to rule out the scary stuff, you can start thinking about functional problems like chronic nonspecific diarrhea and making dietary modifications. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the Med Twitter community for including me on a medical podcast recommendation list this past May. It's always nice to hear I'm doing something right. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you find your podcasts. You can reach me by email at pedsoup at gmail.com or on Twitter at pedsoup. That's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.